Welcome to See Here Speak podcast, episode 26. In this episode, I talk with my longtime collaborators, Shelly Gray and Mary Alt. We discuss our findings on working memory and word learning in children with dyslexia and developmental language disorder. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seeherespeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And please don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to episode 26 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have guests Shelly Gray and Mary Alt. I will have them start by introducing themselves. And this is the part where we have to decide who introduced themselves first. <laughs> How about you, Shelly? Okay. Hi, I'm Shelly Gray. I'm a professor of speech and hearing science at, in the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. Hi, and I'm Mary Alt, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at the University of Arizona, which is in Tucson, Arizona. Well, I have had the good fortune of working with you both for the past <laughs> nearly decade. I was starting to count it up, uh, and we've worked on a project called POWER. So, Shelley, can you tell the listeners about our project, POWER, and what the acronym stands for, why we felt this work was needed, and some of our primary hypotheses, and then we'll, of course, get into discussing some of our findings. All right. Well, nearly a decade ago, um, you, Tiffany, and Mary and I were word learning researchers and we had a lot of interest in what underlies differences in word learning and what kinds of uh, variance that's not explained in word learning could we account for and we also had a mutual interest in in working memory so we applied for funding for a project we called power profiles of working memory and word learning for educational research and that's important because we are all interested in uh, improving the academic and social performance and lives of children who have different uh, disabilities and especially children with uh, developmental language disability and children with dyslexia and children who may have concomitant um, both of those disorders or attention deficit. So in the POWER project initially when we um, tried to look to see what was available for assessing working memory in children. We found a battery that was available in the UK, um, but we didn't find very comprehensive batteries for working memory, and especially we were concerned that some of the working memory tasks that have been used a lot relied heavily on language. And since we were uh, assessing children with language disorders, we wanted, uh, we wanted tasks in a, in a battery that uh, didn't uh, work against the kids who had language disorders. So we spent five years developing um, this battery called the Comprehensive Assessment Battery for Children, and we have the Working Memory one, and we also have the Word Learning um, Battery. And at that time, our hypothesis was that we could account for more variance in word learning um, if we knew not only children's um, language and their reading ability, but also their working memory and their nonverbal IQ. So we spent five years studying that in second graders. 
I remember one thing about developing the task is first off, it was really hard. and <laughs> took a lot of time. <laughs> but the next thing is that a lot of the tasks we found were just really boring, really, really, really boring. And one thing I thought we tried to do, uh, I think we were pretty successful, is making tasks that are a bit more motivating by making them child-friendly. And uh, Mary, can you tell, us, tell the listeners a little bit about the platform? Because I think it's a fairly unique platform in which we created these tasks. Absolutely. So we decided, as you said, things were boring or they would be too difficult for children. And so we put this whole battery together in the context of a pirate adventure. Um, <laughs> and so children got to choose a pirate avatar. There were, of course, both males and females to choose from. Uh, then they would be taken to different oceans. Uh, one ocean was a word learning ocean. One was a working memory ocean. Uh, within the oceans, there were different islands. And so it was really funny because we were working hard, but we were always talking about, all right, what's going on with Ice Cream Island? And there's something <laughs> happening on Sea Monster Island. So it was kind of funny to, you know, have this very serious work that was really um, wrapped up in this kind of game. And to connect all of this, children uh, would earn uh, coins when they did well on the games. And sometimes if they, to keep them motivated and make sure they weren't not trying at all, they might get a rock inspired by Charlie Brown on Halloween. Um, and then they could take all their coins and go to the pirate stores and buy things for the pirates. And that was just incredibly motivating to kids. Um, and these tasks took several days and so it was nice to have that continuity that they saw their pirate again and they had uh, some kids saved money uh, from one island to the next some spent it all at the store but we really put it in that context because our idea was the more fun it is the better data we'll get mm -hmm. and i'll link in the resources for the podcast that uh, article we wrote for the journal of visual experiments where we show some of these tasks and how they're done. And then um, listeners should know that we are continuing to pursue funding so that we can create this uh, you know, gamification and testing of working memory in a way that, that the public can access so that you can you know, administer it um, in the future. That's our ultimate goal because we have some pretty cool findings that we're gonna share with you. And it is, it is our, um, you know, I mean, it's really our thinking here that based on these findings, having this information in the classroom would add something beyond uh, what you would find from standardized testing. And that leads me right into talking about these papers we published from the Power data set. I thought what we could do is each describe our favorite findings and what we think it means for clinical practice. And I thought I'd have you start, Shelley, with your paper. All right. Well, I think as Mary said, all your papers become your favorites <laughs> because you work so hard for them. But one of the uh, one of the questions we had in our original project, and then we continue to have in in our renewal project, is uh, what does working memory information add over and above what you already know about a child? So uh, if they're typically developing, if they have developmental language disorder or dyslexia. And we also uh, assessed uh, bilingual children, Spanish, English, bilingual children in our first set of projects too. So we, uh, we had to wait until we'd collected five years worth of data to really answer this question. But 
we wanted to know whether uh, particular working memory profiles were uh, the same or synonymous with a developmental disorder. So uh, if a child has DLD, does that also mean that child also has working memory problems? Or if a child has dyslexia, does that mean that child does? Or if a child has typical development, does it mean they're not at risk for having any working memory problems? And what we were able to find in this uh, uh, profile analysis was four different working memory profiles. One of the really interesting findings was that uh, one of the things that separated profiles was uh, central executive tasks, and um, in particular, updating tasks in working memory in uh, working memory CE function, but. We also found that children from all of those groups, um, those, the DLD, the dyslexia, the typically developing kids were represented in each one of those profiles. And there were typically developing children in each of those profiles too. So for me, that was a really important finding because it suggests that knowing a, a child's working memory profiles, their strengths and their weaknesses can tell us more than a typical psychoeducational evaluation. And um, maybe Mary could tell you a little more about what we're planning to do with that in the future. But we certainly think that um, this could really help classroom practice and even uh, targeting therapy certain ways to help children learn, have more tailored learning. Yeah, exactly. And so if I can move us into the, well, the past and the future a little bit mm -hmm. from that. This is one of the things we were hoping to find. Um, our clinical hypothesis from working with these kids was that they're not a monolithic group. They're not all the same. Um, and so one of the things we're looking forward to doing and we're planning a grant to extend is to use information about working memory profiles and look at both kind of um, different tiers of instruction. So more whole classroom type of strategies uh, as well as more targeted strategies and see who benefits from those uh, with the hypothesis that kids with different kinds of uh, working memory profiles will be able to benefit from different types or different intensities of um, working memory strategies in a classroom. And I want to be clear to listeners too that our team doesn't, we're not coming from a perspective where we think we can change or improve uh -huh. somebody's working memory. I think that's a really important point. Yes. Sometimes there are these uh, tests or uh -huh. not test products out there that say, oh, you can improve your working memory. And most of the time what those things find is that you can improve on that particular game, but it doesn't really translate. But as interventionists, I think what we know is if we understand your strengths and weaknesses, there are different types of ways of structuring intervention that could take advantage of those strengths or compensate for those weaknesses. And that's what we're really excited about uh, exploring as we move forward. I think the, the one, one of the aspects of this paper that really struck me was uh, this heterogeneity. And like you said, we see it clinically. But for instance, in the children in the paper who had dyslexia, and we had two groups of children with dyslexia. We had children who had dyslexia, and that's uh, deficit in word reading with and without language impairment. So we had children with dyslexia, what we call dyslexia only. So dyslexia, poor word reading and good language skills 
versus children with dyslexia plus developmental language disorder, so poor overall language skills, like on lower score on the self. And what surprised me is that the research shows children with dyslexia have a hallmark deficit in phonological processing, and that's typically measured like phonological awareness, but you see also just many phonological tasks like digit span, similar to the ones we use, non-word repetition. And what we found in this paper that children with dyslexia uh, whether they had DLD or uh, without DLD, they showed a range of abilities in phonological processing, so much so that in the group of, I think it was around 60, what, 68 or so kids we had, 60 to 70 mm -hmm. children with dyslexia, the range was, in, in terms of a Z-score, plus three, so really, really good phonological processing versus negative three. So that wide range of phonological processing abilities Said another way, the children that we had in our sample uh, that had dyslexia, I think it was only about 40% that showed a clear phonological deficit. And I've actually been talking to other researchers with data sets like this to say, you know, what is the phonological processing looking like? Because we have these group findings, right? Like, so the group as a whole, if we looked mm -hmm. at just group differences, it's clear that children with dyslexia have phonological processing deficits at the group level. But when we look at this individual profile, not all of the children individually have phonological deficits. And talking to other researchers, this is something they've looked back in their data sets and said, wow, this is true. So I think it, it just speaks to uh, some of the work that we do at a group level that doesn't always translate to the individual level. And as clinicians, we're looking at individual children. So we are working on a paper to follow up some of that, looking more deeply at those individual differences in children with dyslexia, in particular related to phonology, to see what could maybe be driving some of those individual differences. But like Mary said, it's not surprising to our clinical eye because we see these children clinically and recognize their heterogeneity. Another thing uh, I wanted to point out is in our initial development work, this was all with second grade children, and we picked second grade because we think it's such an important time to identify and to be able to figure out how to teach the kids most effectively, but it could change over time. So example, profiles could certainly change over time. So in our renewal project that we're working on now, uh, we're actually conducting a longitudinal study of children beginning in kindergarten uh, through sixth grade to see how working memory develops and unfolds. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And we also have included the same kinds of children with developmental language disorder and, and dyslexia or both to see uh, whether the characteristics we saw in, in that study hold across time or whether as children um, develop reading and their they have more and more exposure in the educational system, Whether what impact that's having on their working memory development. Mary, could you give us a, a concrete example of what you're thinking about when you say that we could leverage the working memory profiles of these children for intervention? Yeah, so I guess a couple of things that I think about are, um, there are some approaches in, um, education about things like effortful retrieval, right? Trying yeah. to get people to practice. People typically don't like it, but it really shows that it helps them a lot. But if you are successfully 
poor working memory, that strategy just may not work for you because you maybe don't have it there to recall. So you, if you have a low working memory profile and you're in a classroom that's asking you to use something like effortful retrieval, that may be just a waste of time for you. You may need something where you have other support so that you could practice encoding that um, word or that math problem or whatever it is. I mean, this uh, affects a lot of types of academics, but that so that you could practice it more. For you, it's not about recalling. For you, it's about getting more attempts so that you actually do remember it and encode it. Uh, where And that's going to take probably a little more time and effort uh, versus the child who has dyslexia or DLD, who has a good working memory profile, they might not need that same kind of intensive practice that way. And the, we might want to focus our attention on something different for them. They could do something as simple as effortful retrieval or other types of kind of classroom level strategies and be okay with that. Um, so it kind of helps us decide who needs more focused um, intervention that way. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And Shelly, you mentioned that we had the bilingual sample. Mary, can you tell us about some of your the work that you've led in the project related to bilingual findings? Sure. So one of the reasons we're interested in including a bilingual sample is, um, well, there are tons of bilingual kids in our world. <laughs> we want to make sure, well, really, we want to make sure we represent them. And uh, especially when it comes to things like word learning, there's almost no work on word learning in bilingual kids. There's a lot on vocabulary, but it doesn't tell us much about how they learn. And if we want to understand what to do educationally, we assume that these children have, you know, tons of competence, but it's not fair to assume that they do things the exact same way as their monolingual peers. We really need to figure out what things are similar and what things are different. So if we need to account for that in their learning or just understanding how they approach the world, we could do that. Um, so in this, in our study, we had bilingual kids who were typically developing and who were fairly bilingual. And by fairly bilingual, what I mean is that these were children who could hold conversations in both English and Spanish. Um, so they, they were pretty strong bilinguals. Um, and one of the papers we did looked at how they did, um, what their word learning looked like. And basically what we found there was, by and large, both monolingual and bilingual, um, typically developing children learned words with about the same level of ability, but there were definitely some differences in the group, and those were just interesting to note. Um, one thing was in tasks where we asked children to judge the phonologic, the phonology of a sound. So if they heard a word, we might say another word that sounded close to that. Um, the, the children who were bilingual were tended to be a lot more accepting of differences in sounds. And a lot of this we were hypothesizing. And when I say we, I have to shout out my former doctoral student, Dr. Genesis Arismendi, who uh, was a huge part of this. Um, the idea that these kids are often hearing varieties of phonological productions in their environment. Uh, and so if they understand the context, they tend to be a little more, if you will, forgiving of some phonological differences. Now, might this make a difference in school where you're learning words like um, 
endoskeleton, exoskeleton, where those little phonological differences make a big deal. We don't really know, but knowing that we see this pattern, it's something to look for. I was also really intrigued. It seemed there was one place they struggled a little bit um, when trying to encode some visual features of words they were learning when orthography was present, which made me wonder about, well, what's, what's going on with processing there? We can't answer that yet. But I think another thing I want to point out is, um, although our bilingual population as a group came from a lower SES, they SES didn't make a difference in word learning and the kids did just as well as the monolingual kids who as a group came from a higher SES group. So I also thought that was um, really important information because if you, we know sometimes there's under identification for kids who are bilingual. And so what it tells me is that if you're working with a bilingual child, um, you know, we should expect a lot of competence in word learning. And if there isn't, we don't want to blame that on low SES or something like that. That, that gives us some good information that these children, uh, typically developing children that have lots of competence in that area. Well, speaking of um, SES, we also had a paper that looked at um, bilingual and the essential, the uh, executive functioning um, strength that they're said to have. Can you tell us about that paper, Mary? Sure, and that one again, where our first author was Dr. Razmendi. Um, so one of the things we found is the literature is a little bit of a mess on some central executive tasks. <laughs> So when we let, went to look at things, one basic thing we want to look at is what's the reliability of the task. In other words, if you give it, you know, the, the classic examples, if you step on the scale one time after the other, you should get roughly the same reading, right? That's reliability. And if your task doesn't have good reliability, you can't really make a lot of inferences from it. And a lot of central executive tasks, even really well-known ones like Stroop tasks, um, they don't have great reliability or they don't report on it at all. So there's kind of a methodological issue out there. Um, but what we found was when we used our task and narrowed them down to the ones that had good reliability, because not all of our executive function tasks criteria, um, we did not find a central executive advantage for our bilingual children. Um, and there were one or two cases where they actually performed a little bit worse than the monolingual peers. Um, and there are a million potential reasons for this. And you know, one thing we bring up in the paper is the idea about would be interesting to know one thing that can counteract um, executive function performance is stress. And we wonder what it's like living, you know, in a border community when the political situation is what it, is is like what it's like um there's definitely some stress associated with that so these are avenues that are open for exploration in the future but i think the bottom line was we we did not find evidence of that um uh, advantage but i guess i think it's important to know that's a you know i think it's always an advantage to be bilingual yes that's right Functionally, I think that's a really important message to get out there. It's just this particular central executive advantage wasn't present in our, our data. Very interesting. Yeah, Tiffany, I wanted to give a shout out to some other people on our yeah. team. Yeah. 
We've, uh, we've worked with Nelson Cowan since the very beginning and he's, you know, he's a world-renowned researcher in working memory and he has been wonderful to work with. He's, you know, he's a valued member of the team. And then uh, our statistician, the late Sam Green, who helped, we're doing some fairly complicated analyses in these papers and, and now we're working with the statistician Roy Levy. So, and then we have many doc students like uh, Katie Cabbage and other people who have contributed. So it's really been a great team. It has been a great team. Big team, big team yeah. effort. Yeah, and that's not even effort. counting yeah, that's not even counting the, you know, myriad uh, undergraduates and, and other students who contributed. So this, all the work we do is absolutely a, a huge team project. Well, and Shelly, you mentioned five years. We collected data for five years, and that wasn't because this project was longitudinal, the one we're talking about, for the findings. It's because it took five years to collect all the data on the children mm -hmm. in second grade and find those exact kids. So I think, and that was in three different sites, um, really I guess because we had Boston because I moved to Boston from Nebraska. Uh, I, this leads me to talk a little bit about my favorite paper and it was led by Lauren Barron, a doctoral student of mine who's now a postdoc and then you mentioned Katie Cabbage, a postdoc on the project who also led the Journal of Visual Experiments um, paper and in this paper we looked in more, in more detail at a specific aspect of word learning and that's one of my favorite things about this project is that you can we can take a kind of wide angle view, wide lens, I guess, and think about profiles across kids. But we have so many details in each of our tasks that we can also take a very um, you know, narrow, focused view on a specific aspect of word learning. And this aspect we looked at was orthographic facilitation. So orthographic facilitation is the idea that if you're learning a new vocabulary word, and you're hearing how that word is pronounced, so you're thinking about the sounds in the words, learning a new phonological representation, we know that the phonological representation is remembered more accurately, recalled more accurately, if it's learned in the presence of letters. So that would be if we're learning the word, let's say, um, uh, took, and you want to learn, you know that it has the took, uh, but if you also learn it when it's being spelled out, so maybe it's T-U-K-E in this case, if we want to teach it that way, then if it's paired with the, the written form, uh, the, the spoken forms actually learned more accurately. And so what we did in our experiment was we had uh, four words that children were learning and two uh, showed orthography or how to spell the non-word on the screen while they were learning the the. Um, word and two uh, did not include the written form while they were learning, learning the word. What we found is that in typically developing children, uh, children, we found a very robust orthographic facilitation. So whenever we ask them to label, um, in our project we have monsters that are labeled. When we said, what's this monster's name? Uh, they were able to produce and recall the sounds associated with that monster's name more accurately when during learning the name was paired with a written form. And we see this also in children who had dyslexia, which was a surprising finding in some ways because uh, I think the studies, this was the first study of orthographic facilitation in children with dyslexia. And I think it's because it was almost assumed that children with dyslexia wouldn't benefit from orthographic facilitation because they have word reading deficits and they have known deficits in, in letter, um, 
recall and letter pattern recall, uh, but we found they did show this facilitation effect. It just wasn't as strong as their peers who were typically developing, and it seemed to plateau. So with more repetitions, they didn't really show this improvement, but they did benefit. So clinically, we argued that even with children with dyslexia, for all learners, if you're teaching a new word, it's good to pair the spoken form with the written form. But especially with children with dyslexia, you don't want to shy away from including mm -hmm. the written form, even though they have difficulty reading. So this is one of my favorites uh, uh, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is it has a very clear clinical outcome and it's in line with many, many studies uh, that are out there on orthographic facilitation. Mm -hmm. And, and if I can throw in one other favorite, uh, we also have a paper where we looked at word learning in kids who are typically developing, kids who have dyslexia only, and kids who have dyslexia and DLD. And what we found there was the kids with dyslexia were less accurate than the typical peers about a third of the time. They were equivalent to them about a third of the time, but the kids who had both were less accurate like 83% of the time. Like, it was much, much worse for them. And I think the real takeaway there is um, in our field, and I, I would, I'm just gonna say it, I think it's true both in research and clinically, we don't always do a great job figuring out when kids have both oral and mm -hmm. written language issues. Absolutely. And this uh, really showed me that it makes a big difference. There's a big, big difference in that kid who only has dyslexia and the kid who has dyslexia and DLD. The kid with DLD too is going to struggle way more with word learning. So if they're kids with dyslexia or specific reading impairments who haven't been tested for language, that's something we really need to look at. Um, so I Absolutely. think that also was a big clinical um, aha moment. Yeah, and the flip and side I'll, is I'll, that, oh, go ahead. I'll add to that that in our working memory profiles paper, not every child with both uh, was in the low working memory profile, not at all, but there were more of those kids in the low profile. So having both doesn't mean that you have to have a working memory deficit, but you're more likely, more a higher percentage of those kids did. So. Um, that's another thing you'll want to work with your school psychologist or um, to have the working memory assessment as well. And I think too, thank you for giving that shout out, Mary, uh, on measuring both word reading and language because we have found in several studies that the co-occurrence is about 50%. So about 50% of children with dyslexia have a comorbid language impairment and 50% uh, of children with language impairment have a comorbid dyslexia, but we tend to stick in our silos and just measure, if you're a speech pathologist, you know, just measure the language skills and you know, special educators, um, reading specialists are measuring word reading uh, and we're not really looking at both of them and it does make a difference in the outcomes. And the other thing too is that children with dyslexia, even though their hallmark deficit is um, word reading deficits, we see they also have problems in word learning, even if their language is good. So I think that was a big take home too. Absolutely, and we definitely found that here, um, and we found that their 
word learning problems were more related to phonology, but not exclusively. So <laughs> there are a lot of options for places to struggle. That's right. And, you know, I'll say that I'll put a plug out for a special issue of language speech hearing services in the school in which that paper uh, was published, where the whole issue is about vocabulary word learning. So take a look and we'll link that into the resources for the podcast. I'm being mindful of time here and I want to turn to the last uh, two questions that I ask every guest. Um, even though we've been talking all about this power project and Shelly, you mentioned we ha are uh, fortunate we have the continuation. So we have five more years to work together and think about this more longitudinally. We have all been working on other projects at the same time. <laughs> and so uh, it will start with you, Mary. If you could tell me, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Everything. <laughs> I know. It's trying to get me to pick favorites and I love it all. Um, I think I would say probably the biggest theme I have outside of power is looking at how learning and what we know about learning can be applied to practice. So I'm particularly interested in things like statistical learning, which is the learning that happens sort of without trying the patterns that people recognize. Um, and amplifying those patterns in treatment so people who struggle with learning can learn better. So we're looking at that in word learning and late talking toddlers. We have some projects out that are exploring what some of that would look like in science vocabulary learning and English language learners or adults with impairments. But just that idea of trying to take what we know from um, Kind of a cognitive science perspective about learning and infusing that into therapy intervention classroom instruction and you have a special issue that you led for language speech hearing services in the school on just this topic so listeners could delve deeper and learn more about statistical learning and what it means for your practice because there's some very clear i think clinical implications from the work that you've done and others absolutely and yeah it's a terrible boring name but a fascinating topic <laughs> <laughs> the name doesn't 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 do it justice, but that's good. Uh, Shelley, what are you working on now? You're most excited about aside from power. Well, we have two ongoing studies that have been going on for quite a long time that we keep learning new things. One is originally it was the language and reading research consortium where we followed children longitudinally to watch their language and. Uh, reading reading comprehension development. So those kids that we started following in preschool with a large group of people, uh, scientists and um, schools working with us are now in eighth grade. So we, we've been following them and it's amazing to see the kids ever each year and see how they're growing and what all they're learning. I never forget how old those children are, Shelly, because, you know, she, I was on the <laughs> yes, project with Shelly, and my son is the same age as our participants. Yes. So he's in eighth grade, and I'm like, oh, those large yep. participants are in eighth grade, too. <laughs> yes. um, and then another one is uh, with my colleague, Jeannie Wilcox, we have a early uh, teaching early literacy and language tier one curriculum in, in preschool and getting kids off to good starts really near and dear to us. And we're trying out different forms of professional development to go with that, including a distance model, which we haven't done before so that we could scale up. So that's interesting. But I think one of the most exciting things is in our college, uh, our college is funding what they're calling translational teams. And the whole purpose is for the community to bring problems to you that they would like to have solved. So we have two going on in our lab right now. One was a group of pediatricians uh, 
one was a mom who had a child with dyslexia who said, why aren't we screening for dyslexia in pediatrician's office? We Absolutely. screen for all these other developmental things. Why aren't we screening for dyslexia? So uh, we're working with them on a parent questionnaire that could be administered at a well child visit. So that's pretty exciting. And they have a lot of different ideas than we do, and that's pretty exciting too. And a second project is um, tackling this problem of lack of professional development, lack of access to professional development to early childhood educators in rural areas, or even um, you work all day and your mom at, at home at night with your kids and you can't go to professional development. So we're exploring the use of this ECHO platform, which is um, was developed for medical offices to transmit uh, knowledge. And so we're going to be trying that out um, in our state. So this is a statewide project. And we're really hoping to be able to pull together a lot of resources. So that's pretty exciting. That too. is very cool. I have to say, I just have to give a heartfelt shout out to both of you because uh, science is hard, just like clinical practice is hard, but it's made much easier and more enjoyable with friends and with collaborators that become friends and make it fun and get to bounce off ideas. And, um, you know, I think uh, I have a funny story about the Lark and Power. So Shelly, I remember that we had just gotten the Lark grant which is a, a massive grant to study not only children longitudinally, but create interventions and test them in a randomized control trial. And as Shelly said, she continues on with that work. And I remember we had just gotten that and then Shelly, oh, I'm sorry, we had just gotten power. It's vice versa. We just gotten power. And Shelly said, hey, what about doing this other thing? It was Lark. And I was like, oh my goodness, um, there's so much to do, but you were so enthusiastic and the opportunity to work with you again on and to work on these two projects has been amazing. And and then Mary and I started at Air, University of Arizona the exact same year. Uh, so we were um, <laughs> learning together, weren't we, Mary? <laughs> so, they were, we were lab sisters. Yeah. We were lab sisters. So it, was, it was really amazing. Um, and I'm so excited to showcase your work and tell the listeners more about these findings and hopefully turn the listeners on to read more about what we've done because we, we could say so much more. But we do have another important question I want to get to that I ask every guest, and that is, what's your favorite childhood book? So Shelly, what is your favorite childhood book? Or you can also say a book now that's your favorite if you'd prefer. Well, one that I remember really well was read to us by our fourth grade teacher, and it was Misty of Chinkatee. Did you either <laughs> heard of it? it? No, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's about wild horses, and you know, in yeah. elementary school, you go through this wild yes. horse riding phase. Yes. A lot of a lot of kids do. Um, but I will say, in our elementary school, our teachers read to us after lunch every day. They read long books, and many of my favorite books were books that were read to to me. And that was, um, it's still a great book. You should read it, Misty of Chinkatee. Awesome. And it's such still a wonderful practice to have, uh, you know, when teachers oh, read yeah. out loud, right? And that's a big part of, of our thinking with LARC, too. So, Shelly, I'm sorry, Mary, what was your favorite book? Oh, well, before I do that, I want to throw in one other shout out for a project I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, we were just, uh, and when I say we, it's us and Nancy Shearer and Lyda Restrepo up at ASU, mm -hmm. just got funding from the Office of Special Education Programs for a grant called PRIDE, Preparing Researchers in Early Intervention for Children with Disabilities for Multicultural Environments. Mm -hmm. so we'll be able to train a cohort 
of um, doctoral students who are interested in working with kids from multicultural environments. And I think that really speaks to that idea of kind of, it's more fun when you have friends to do it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of exciting to have um, a cross-university cohort coming together for that. So if anyone out there wants uh, funded training, come talk to me. <laughs> That's but, fantastic. And we have Lida on the podcast. So if you haven't listened to Lida's episode, have a listen because you'll learn more about what she's up to too. And the powerhouse that would be working with Lida and Mary would be amazing and your other collaborator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other, so my, again, I, it's ho so hard to pick favorites, but I'm going to call out a book that I discovered as a therapist that I just thought was so much fun. It's called Arthur's Tractor, A Fairy Tale with Mechanical Parts by <laughs> Tippa Part. And it's got beautiful illustrations, and it's about this somewhat incompetent farmer. And behind him, he's worried about what's going on with his tractor, but behind him there's um, a dragon and a princess. And I love the language in it because he's always cussing, but he says things like, <laughs> Uh, dollops of dumb. The blim blam blade is broken. And he just comes up with these new creative ways to express his frustration. There's a lot going on and it's really fun. So take a peek at that book. It's great visual, great story, great messages and really fun language. Oh, I can't wait to get it for my kids. That's one thing I always do from the podcast is get new books for the kids based on the recommendations from the guests. So that, that sounds like an awesome one and definitely very languagey. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, you two, for finding the time for us to get together and chat. Uh, not about necessarily grant nuts and bolts, because we do that all the time, but to talk about the findings we have and share them with the listeners. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Check out www.seeherespeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.